This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 207. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I'm your host, Riley Bowman. Today, I'm joined again by Mr. Matthew Marister. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great, Riley. And, uh, I, th- I think the, the listeners are going to think I put like a coup or took uh, Jake about because uh, he, I, I've been filling in for him so much. So <laughs> I just want to let him let everybody know I haven't I haven't harmed him. He's okay. Just, just helping <laughs> he's, out. He's still alive. Huh? You don't have him tied up in a back room closet no. or something somewhere, do you? <laughs> no, I don't. Oh, thank goodness. So, uh, hey guys, thanks for joining us on today's episode of the podcast. Uh, hey, just real quick before I forget, a little reminder that uh, if you haven't checked it out already or if you haven't mentioned it to your wife or significant other, uh, we do have the Not Your Average Gun Girls podcast, which has been growing also in popularity. Uh, that is part of, when we say part of the concealedcarry.com network, uh, we have these two podcasts the twice a week concealed carry podcast and now the more geared towards women, although we have quite a few uh, men that listen as well. And I listen to each episode as I, as I produce that show and uh, there's good stuff in there, you know, and they've had some interesting guests, lots of good stuff to learn from. Matthew is a producer of the concealed carry podcast and has been uh, working on a lot of uh, special projects behind the scenes to, to make this show better. And uh, we appreciate him and, and, and it's good to have you uh, join me on the podcast because I know you have good insight. For those that may not know uh, Matthew's background, he was, he's, he was in the Marine Corps. Uh, he's a former law enforcement officer and he's a very talented and skilled, uh, knowledgeable firearms instructor and is very busy instructing all the time. Oh. Anyway, yeah, you bet you, man. So today's uh, episode is brought to you by Guardian Nation. We would encourage you to go over to guardiannation.com and check that out. But also, I want to point your attention to that uh, we just got um, we've, we've got new Glock E trainers in and available. Uh, you've heard us talk about the Glock E trainer on the podcast, and uh, we, we've got we've got all three types now. This is what's exciting. Okay. So if you're not familiar with the different types, there's different models of Glocks. uh, And basically between all the different models of Glocks, you got, basically you got three sizes of, of slides. Okay. There is that oddball. What is the Glock 36, which is the, it's its own size. It's in its own category. and, And we don't have that yet available and don't know if or when we'll have that product available, but the type one fits most of your common size Glocks. The type two fits, the uh, uh, 10 millimeter and 45 caliber Glocks. And then we've also got the type three, which is the uh, Glock 42 and 43, the 380 and the nine millimeter versions of the Glocks as well, the, the, the little subcompacts. So we've got all three of those uh, Glocky trainers available. They're super affordable. They're a great training tool, just another tool to add to your training regimen. Head on over to, uh, you can find them at concealedcarry.com. Uh, you can also go to Glock eTrainer.com. That'll take you right to uh, the main page. You can see all the different types and, and find the one that fit, that works for your particular Glock and, and buy it and check it out. We've been getting awesome feedback from people on those. So anyway, appreciate the sponsors and, and everything that makes it possible to put on this podcast each week. With that, uh, we now have and are pleased to bring to the podcast again for our special case of the week segment, Mr. Andrew Branca of Law of Self-Defense. And so, Matthew, unless you have anything to add, 
I'm going to play back uh, this week's case of the week. Yeah, let's get into it. All right, here we go. Thanks, Concealed Carry Podcast, for having me back on for another Law of Self-Defense case of the week. I'm attorney Andrew Branca for lawofselfdefense.com. This case of the week is provided for educational purposes only. If you are in need of legal advice, you must consult with an attorney in the relevant jurisdiction. This week's case of the week comes out of the Arizona Supreme Court in a decision handed down February 27, 2018, that reverses decades of Arizona self-defense law. That case is State v. Carson. Now, the core of this case is a question that illustrates a collision between common sense and what I optimistically call legal reasoning. And that is the question of whether someone can simultaneously argue, I did not shoot that person, you caught the wrong guy, and at the same time argue, I did it in self-defense. Traditionally, the legal defense of self-defense effectively, at least implicitly, requires a confession of sorts. In fact, it's often referred to as a defense of confession and avoidance. You're not denying that you used force against that person. You're confessing that you did. It was you, but you're avoiding criminal liability because you're claiming the legal justification of self-defense. And traditionally, if you deny that it was you, you can't simultaneously claim self-defense. And that, in fact, has been the law in Arizona for many, many decades. If you deny you did it, if you deny you fired that shot, you can't justify the shot as self-defense because self-defense is a deliberate act. You identified a threat, you used force to neutralize that threat. There are a slew of Arizona appellate court decisions that reinforce this legal doctrine. Uh, just a few examples here are State v. Plu out of the Arizona Supreme Court, 1986, quote, a defendant who denies shooting the victim may not thereafter claim self-defense, close quote. State v. Williams, Arizona Supreme Court, 1982, quote, simple logic demands that a defendant who disclaims the assault of behavior is not entitled to a self-defense instruction. State v. Gilfillan, Arizona Court of Appeals, 2000, Quote, given that the defendant denied committing the act with which he was charged, it follows that he could not argue self-defense, close quote. So all of this affirms that if you deny it was you, you can't also ask that the jury be instructed on self-defense. Self-defense is off the table. Until this case in Arizona, State v. Carson. Now, Carson was essentially involved in a street brawl in which a couple of people were shot to death and another was injured by gunfire, and he was identified by witnesses as a suspect. So he was arrested, he was charged with two counts of murder and aggravated assault, and at his trial, his principal defense was, it wasn't me, you caught the wrong guy, I was someplace else, I had nothing to do with this. And then, when it was time to discuss the jury instructions at the end of the trial, just before the jury goes into deliberations, his defense lawyer asked that the jury also be instructed on self-defense. And the trial judge said, I'm not going to do that. Arizona law is very clear on this. Your client's been arguing the whole trial. It wasn't him. If you argue it wasn't you, you can also argue self-defense. So the jury did not receive the jury instruction. They ended up finding Carson guilty on both counts of murder and the aggravated assault charge. And he appeals that up to the Arizona Supreme Court which makes this remarkable decision. The Arizona Supreme Court notes that for many years, the Arizona courts have stated that a defendant can't simultaneously deny they did it and claim self-defense, citing many of the cases that I just quoted a few moments ago. 
But then they ruled, we now disavow these holdings, and they throw decades of Arizona law right out the window. The new standard in Arizona is even if you deny it was you, you claim you didn't fire those shots, you had nothing to do with it, if there's also any more than zero evidence that could potentially support a legal argument of self-defense, you are entitled to that self-defense jury instruction. So you are now, under Arizona law, permitted to make these inconsistent defenses, entitled to that self-defense jury instruction, so more as there is more than zero evidence to support the self-defense jury instruction. More than zero means the slightest evidence, a tiny bit. Almost anything will be sufficient. So this is quite a remarkable change in Arizona law. Now, I will say, in my experience, that if you're on trial for a use of force, especially a killing, and you're trying to convince the jury that you only committed this act, took that life out of necessary self-defense, and you're simultaneously making inconsistent defenses, it doesn't fly with a human jury. They want to know why this death had to happen, why this person had to die. And if they had to die because they compelled you to use deadly force against them in lawful self-defense, well, that's fine. That's an acquittal. But if you start telling them inconsistent stories about why this had to happen, even to the point of denying that you had anything to do with it while you're arguing self-defense, it just does not fly. They tend not to believe any of the inconsistent defenses that you're presenting. For more in-depth analysis of this decision, for a limited time, you can download our free expert report at lawofselfdefense.com forward slash AZ report. If you enjoy this content, I invite you to join us for the Law of Self-Defense live show every Wednesday, 2 p.m. Eastern. It's totally free to either participate live or to watch the recording after each show. For more information, point your browser to lawofselfdefense.com forward slash show. Don't forget, as a listener to this podcast, you can save 10% on just about everything we do at lawofselfdefense.com, including our books, DVDs, online classes, live classes, and more. Just point your browser to lawofselfdefense.com forward slash concealed carry or use the discount code CCP at checkout. I'm attorney Andrew Branca for lawofselfdefense.com. And there you have it. So in this week's case of the week, Ms. Uh, attorney Andrew Branca uh, covers the case we actually talked about last week and we referenced him. That's, that's, you know, he was the one that put me on to that case out of Arizona. Uh, this was a, uh, an appeals court case, actually the Supreme court, it was appeals, but then went up to the Arizona Supreme court. We're not going to do a lot more analysis on that because we already talked about it last week. Plus Andrew just gave his way more awesome, uh, analysis, <laughs> more awesome, uh, in, in his explanation just now in the case of the week. But uh, we have a comment from Lonnie as we're uh, talking about this. Lonnie's like, mind-boggling. And uh, it, it is because you, on one hand, you got one guy saying, I didn't shoot this guy, but in the event you think I did, I still want you to think of it as self-defense. So if you're going to rule on it and if you're going to say I did it, then at least I did it in self-defense. It, it doesn't compute. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's probably why it's a, a complete 180 from all the other case law that's ever been held there. So, Yep. But it's important to talk about and, and highlight, and I'm glad Andrew uh, did the case of the week on it this week. Uh, you know, that was just last week or the week before that that case was ruled on. So it's a very recent thing, and uh, it could have some fairly wide 
uh, ranging uh, applications, not just in Arizona. You have to understand that I believe in activist judges. And I'm not, I don't know that this is what, that's what this, you know, came from. I mean, Arizona's Supreme Court generally is probably, you know, fairly middle of the road and, and leaning on the conservative side of things. It's interesting why they decided this the way they did, but I would just say I, it wouldn't surprise me to see other judges start to look at a case like this, even though it's only in Arizona currently and go, Hmm, there's actually some, you know, good sound logic there. I think, you know, you know, if they have something similar come up in their state or if it's a federal level case, you might see it come out in one of the district or circuit courts, excuse me, of, of appeals and where they say, Hey, yeah, this, this applies every, in all of district nine or 10 or whatever. So uh, it's, a pretty interesting case. Um, so anyway, let's move on now. We get to our first news story. Last week, we had a listener of the podcast. And uh, I don't remember which, which listener it was. I'm sorry. But the comment was, I'd like to, you know, hear some new guns talked about, some fun stuff, things like that. So Mr. Whoever you are, <laughs> because I don't remember who made that comment, here you go. We have a fun story for you, uh, just for you. I was thinking of you when I pulled this out. To be honest, there's not a lot of new guns being talked about right now. We got through SHOT Show. You hear a lot of new stuff at SHOT. We talked a lot about it, a lot about that stuff way back in January and early February. Now the, a lot of the manufacturers are, are staying a little bit mum as they are maybe saving or holding some stuff back for the uh, NRA annual meetings coming up here in uh, May. So just wanted you to be aware of the fact that it's not exactly easy sometimes to find some of this stuff, but uh, here's a story for you from the firearm blog. And uh, the, the story is uh, that Kalashnikov, okay, yes, the guys that make the AK-47 uh, that, that is world famous and has made, you know, millions and millions and millions of these throughout the world. Uh, and oftentimes are used in the, they're in the hands of, of our enemies that we're fighting. But Kalashnikov uh, announced a while back, actually, uh, what they call the Lebedev pistol. It's a 9mm pistol. Think of it as a basically a Glock 19. has a very low bore axis, uh, supposedly has a nice trigger. I've never laid hands on these personally, okay, but I've read some reports on them. And sounds like it's a pretty cool pistol. Uh, product of Kalashnikov, like I mentioned. And so the story is that uh, Kalashnikov is making a huge investment. And uh, the story labels it as 5 billion rubles that they're mm. investing on the manufacturing plant. And in, in our pre-show prep, Matthew's like, 5 billion rubles. Boy, that's a lot of money. It sounds like a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know the conversion rate, but 5 billion of anything's got to be a lot, right? Well, it's right here in the story. It's 88 million. Oh, okay. <laughs> but 5 billion rubles does sound more impressive. So we'll, we'll, we'll you know, we'll, we'll let... Kalashnikov stick with the 5 billion rubles. That sounds reasonable. And uh, it says here, the design of the Lebedev pistol will get final refinements and put through testings soon. So now the question is, is this going to hit the U.S. market at all or anytime soon? Uh, no idea on that. I, I do suspect now Kalashnikov has been working to bring, you know, things directly to the U.S., which they in the past haven't really done or been able to do. Uh, and I do suspect this is something that they would like to, to try to get into the U.S. market, uh, along with some of their 
Kalashnikov built AK-47s and other similar rifles. Um, so this is called, uh, was originally called the PL-14. Um, and, and there's also the PL-15 that you might see referenced. Uh, but this is all part of the same Lebedev pistol uh, project that they've been working on for, for a while now. Cool looking gun. Uh, I suspect it's probably, like I said, it's going to perform probably very similarly to a Glock 19. Uh, it's it looks kind of like a copy of that to to a degree. Uh, obviously, some differences. It actually has some similarities to like the uh, CZP10C and uh, uh, even some, you know, like the slide kind of almost looks like a like an FN slide you know, with the, the serration cuts in it and stuff like that. So there's some similarities to a couple of guns out there that uh, Americans are more familiar with, but I suspect looks like it's probably a pretty decent shooter. Anyway, there you go. There's your fun news for this week. Matthew, uh, would, you like, would you like to get your hands on one of these? Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm always down to shoot something new. Yeah, for sure. I don't know, uh, you know, like I said, if, the, if or when this will be able to come to the U.S., um, but if they're able to bring it here, we'll definitely, you know, reach out and say, Hey, uh, can we get our hands on one for a review? We'll- yeah. Maybe Carter page can, uh, can hook us up with some, I I, get, I heard he's like connected with Russia somehow. So I don't know. <laughs> All right. All right. So now to some more serious news. Sorry. That was all the fun news I had today. <laughs> um, here's a story from Politico title is want gun control laws forget Congress. Basically, the story goes that there's ways to get laws passed if you're pro-gun control. And that's kind of the, 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 the angle or the slant that this article is taking, uh, you know, because we have Republican-controlled House, um, still a very slim majority in the Senate, you know, on the a, on a, uh, U.S. or national uh, side of things. And a lot of our state legislatures and even governorships are you know, they tend to lean more towards the Republican or conservative side of things. So while we are seeing some laws being passed in states like Florida, which we'll talk about here in just a second, uh, Governor Scott signing the pro-gun control bill in Florida just a few days ago, uh, it, it is thought that probably not a lot of things will happen in a lot of states because they are mostly Republican controlled. So thus the author of this article, Cody Jacobs, thinks that people should push more for ballot initiatives, which certainly is an option to, you know, in, in most states to be able to, that's a, as another option to, for the people to pass certain laws that the people want when maybe the legislation, leg, legislatures are not listening to the people. So what do you think, Matthew? Ballot initiatives, um, obviously, like I said, this is leaning more towards if you think we need more gun control, and he quotes all these statistics about, you know, there's these polls and these surveys that show that there's more support, uh, like 97% of Americans support universal background checks. Ah, I don't buy that. You know, I, I know at least a few people. And, yeah, the people I know are probably a little bit biased. But <laughs> still, 97%. Uh, 83% support a mandatory waiting period. I don't buy that either. And 67% support a nationwide ban on assault weapons. Uh-uh, not buying that either. So what do you think? Ballot initiatives. Yeah, well, I'm actually going to go out. I'm going to be a little uh, controversial and say, yeah, I, I agree with Cody Jacobs exactly. There are some things that 
hey, you should handle at the state level, right? The, 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 the federal government doesn't need to be involved in every single thing. There are some things that if you want to have happen, um, you know, there's state initiatives that you can, you can uh, work towards. And they, they mentioned, you know, the marijuana laws and things like that. So, you know, I agree, it, you know, um, give some of the power back to the states and let them, let them determine what's best for their uh, constituents. However, um, it, you know, when you were going through this, the, the stats that these, the, 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 in this political article, um, I just, you know, I looked at some of where they're pulling these statistics from and they make crazy generalizations and statements. So in one of the, in one of the areas, uh, one, one part, they say, um, uh, there's an, the enormous sums of money from pro-gun interest groups okay so you just gloss over that and say pro pro you know they're, they're pumping enormous amounts of money like you would think millions and millions of dollars if you click on the link that they that they provide in the article it it will it will break down how much money and it's like thousand here a couple thousand here it's it's peanuts compared to the amount of money um, that these anti gun groups um, pump into uh, uh, representatives. So it, all, all this stuff is just slanted in a, in a way to make you think that everybody in the country is against it. But if it weren't for the NRA, um, you know, th those things would become a reality and it's just not true. So yeah, good on you. You know, you, you, you learned uh, or, you know, Cody Jacobs, you, you understand um, that there are some things that the federal government shouldn't put their hands in or, or there are some powers that are delegated to the state. So good on you. And, uh, and, and maybe that'll work out for you, but I, I, I doubt it because all your statistics are completely, completely skewed. Yeah. I, I, I believe they are also skewed. I mean, cause I just, I find it hard now, by the way, Quinnipiac is generally well-respected for the polls and surveys they put together uh, in, that, in that they at least have a, a pretty uh, well-regulated uh, criteria for, you know, the way they, they go about doing that. They're, they're not just a, you know, well, like if we put together a poll, <laughs> we are not professionals at it. These guys are supposedly professionals. They're used oftentimes when polling uh, voters on uh, their thoughts about certain parties or candidates or what, you know, especially during uh, presidential election cycles, you, you'll see a lot of Quinnipiac polls that, but the thing is they aren't always accurate because we've seen polls from them in political races that end up being not close at all. And, and so I have to look at some of these numbers and go, this just, I mean, it doesn't feel like it, like it reflects America as we know it. Now, like I said, I know that my view and Matthew's view of America and what America or who America is, is definitely different than, than someone that is, you know, on the opposite side of things from us. Uh, but I think I have a pretty good feel for where a lot of just, you know, regular Joes and Janes in America are in their thinking. And it doesn't add up with the numbers we're seeing from this poll. But there is something that is interesting to note. Okay. And one thing that Quinnipiac is very good at doing is asking, basically, you know, is conducting the same polls every so often so you can see trends. Okay. So the one thing that I think we can take from this is that there is a trend. This most recent one was back in, you know, just a couple of weeks ago in February. February 20th was when this latest poll was conducted. Uh, there is a trend that 
support for gun control has increased. And that's key. Obviously, February 20th is following the Parkland shooting. And so the trend is that support for gun control has increased somewhat. And that's important to understand, guys. Those of you that are listening, uh, we've got to recognize that things like this, things like, 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 like what's going on in our country right now, are indicators of the sentiment of, of Americans and that there are Americans that are being influenced by these types of shootings and, and horrible, horrible events that, that occur because we have to recognize there are people that, that are sitting on the fence, right? And those are the people that we can be concerned with is the people that are sitting on the fence. Uh, we can debate all day long to our blue in the face with somebody that is, you know, a big uh, Bloomberg supporter, uh, Mayors Against Guns or Every Town or, you know, Moms Demand Action, whatever. Like we can debate with those people that are, you know, in those groups uh, all day long. And we're, we're probably not going to change any opinions there. But there are a lot of Americans sitting in the middle that are very easily swayed. And it's important to understand that if we're going to win this debate, win this, this battle, if you will, uh, because it is, as, as you're going to see here in a minute, as we cover some other stories, we've, we've got to be, we, we can't stick our hand, head in the sand is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, don't become complacent at all. Don't, I hear a lot of people say, oh, that's, that, that's so outlandish. You know, we have Republican senators and, and it'll never pass. It'll never happen. And, and um, don't, don't fall into that trap because uh, that, that's how the complacency comes in. in you get bills like in Florida and, and that's, it's not where you want to be. Right. Well, like you just said, don't get complacent and don't think that this will never happen. Right. Because we just saw a few days ago, governor Rick Scott of Florida passed or signed, excuse me, he signed this major gun control legislation for Florida. Okay. Now on the surface, I will point out, we've talked, we talked about it last week. Last week, the story was the Senate in Florida had passed this bill but it still needed to, you know, it, it, it still had to go before the governor. It still had to be signed by him. And he hem and hawed about it for a couple of days. Wasn't exactly sure what he was going to do. I kind of had this gut feeling. I'm like, he's going to cave. He, he is going to cave. Uh, I, I, could, I called it last week uh, and he, he did that. All right. Now on the surface, in all fairness, okay, because I, I do think this is fair to recognize they did have a provision, or the bill does have a provision. Senate Bill 7026 is set to allocate hundreds of millions of dollars to make Florida schools more secure, hire more school-based police officers. Hey, you know what? I'm cool with that, all right? And create a $67 million school marshal program, which would allow school counselors, athletics coaches, and librarians access to firearms training and the ability to carry within the schools. So we're, we are opening the door for more... Uh, school administrators and teachers and so forth, staff people to be able to get training and carry a gun on school property. I'm cool with that. But what I touched on before, what we talked about last week, uh, Matthew, I'm sure you'll recall, and, and I'm still a little bit frustrated about this part of the, of the law is that they are requiring 132 hours plus an additional 12. There's a total of 144 hours. If you read the language of this bill, that they are going to require of those that choose, because it is elect, you know, it, it is election based. You you are allowed to choose to participate, and provided your school or school district uh, uh, supports that, and and I guess you get all the appropriate approvals or whatever. But then you have to go through basically, what was it like ten days? No, it was more than that. It was like thirteen or fourteen days worth of training in order to be able to carry that gun on school property. 
Now, training is not a bad thing. And getting that level or that amount of training is awesome. However, I, I do feel like they've set the bar so high on that standard that it will still be a discouragement. I think you'll see very few teachers actually do this and, and be able to go through with it. And that, I think, is a, is a great travesty because it, it, it may not result in what we need to see as far as, you know, getting more trained individuals and teachers that are capable of doing this. It, we may not see enough of them ending up in these schools carrying guns and able to defend these students. Right. And I, and I think exactly what you're saying, it will happen. And then after this, you know, uh, plan has been in place for a while and they'll say, look, we've only had five, five teachers that want to go through this. It's not worth it. See people, you know, teachers don't want this, but it's not that they don't want that. It's that it's not that they don't want to be armed. It's that they can't go through the level of training. Uh, many of them can't just, you know, do that. It's just, it's just overwhelming and it's discouraging, like you said. So uh, yeah. it's, it, it will be spun in, in, in a negative way uh, to show that, you know, teachers don't want to do this rather than it's prohibitive in the amount of training required. That's right. Now, Paul comments here on Facebook, 100, uh, 132 hours is twice as much as a police officer in Colorado receives in an academy. Like, that's crazy, right? Yeah, when you put <laughs> and, it and in that context. True, by the way, this is true of a lot of other states and, and uh, state, you know, post standards and training that you see by, you know, that law. Now, now, could law enforcement officers get more training? Sure, absolutely. But that, that kind of puts it in perspective. It's like, this law is making the standard even more difficult to achieve than a police officer whose job is, you know, whose full-time job, particularly when they're going through an academy, their full-time job is to get that kind of trip, that training. And they're not in many cases getting that many hours of training. That's yeah, and, I mean, that's, that includes legal training. You have to learn law, report writing, everything, man. Not just, you know, it, it's crazy. I, I, I mean, when you put it in a context like that, Paul, I'm glad you, you, you put that in there because it really shows how, what the, what the standard is in, in, um, yeah. It, uh, so does that mean that all schools are no longer gun-free zones? You know, I, I guess for some people, I, I don't know, I guess that they would have to repeal that unless they put in a provision, um, that allows this, this, I, it, it, it's definitely not ideal. Um, yep. the way they have it written. Yep. No, it's, that was kind of my point. You know, it's like kudos to them for taking this step, but I don't think they took the step in the right way. Uh, so that, I think that's unfortunate. Now, what else is in this bill? We're just talking about one piece and I do think it's a flawed piece. Adding additional funding for mental health. You know what? I'm not going to comment on that. That's cool. Whatever. Great. Cool. All right. Banning bump stocks. We've talked about that before on the podcast. I don't agree with it, but all right, whatever. Creating a waiting period for purchasing firearms. So minimum three-day wait waiting period. If you go back in history, if you look at places where, they, where this type of law has been proposed or has passed before, you see zero reduction, substantial reduction in any sort of crime at all, okay? It, it, this sort of thing has been shown to, to have no relation on crime, okay? So... And we've talked about this this issue before as well. We talked about it last week when we were talking about the bill. So we don't need to rehash all this out. In raising the minimum age to buy a gun from 18 to 21. Um, also, I think pretty ineffective and 
not exactly, you know, I was going to say not fair. <laughs> it's not fair to 18, 19, 20 year olds. Uh, it's not fair when they're able to vote and uh, elect some of these individuals in office, but, but they can't have, you know, they, they can't exercise their second amendment. Right. But I wanted to bring up Matthew. Uh, we, we talk about this raising the age from 18 to 21 to purchase basically any type of gun. Cause that was basically what it did. Okay. We already know federal law requires you to be 21 to purchase a handgun and everybody else, you know, 18 plus year olds could buy long guns. Right. And so now what they've basically done is raise that long gun age in Florida up to that same 21 uh, minimum requirement. I think the discussion that should be had, Matthew is, you know, we, we talk about that as though that's this really terrible thing and it is. But why don't we talk about the the standard for requiring you to be 21 to purchase a handgun if that's if that's the case, which is it's been like that for a long time. Is that not a fair discussion to have as well? Yeah, and it would ha- we'd have to look at what was the rationale at that time, and and why was that you know why was that um, arbitrary cutoff? Why is that made? I would guess that it's okay. Handguns are more concealable. They're you know easily the more easily transferred and things like that. Um, maybe, you know, uh, maybe that had something to do with it. Um, but yeah, that, that's definitely uh, an interesting conversation of, you know, what was the, what was the rationale behind that? Right. I mean, that's my point is, you know, people are up in arms about raising this age from 18 to 21 to purchase long guns. Why were we not already up in arms why, why was this not an issue for us with the handguns? And here's what I would say, at least right now, because that federal law has been in place for decades, okay? So we've grown accustomed to that law, right? It's just, that's just the way it works. And so we're cool with it. My point behind this is when we pass laws, we talk about the slippery slope, right? The slippery slope is it's like boiling a frog in water. You don't just toss them right into the boiling pot. You stick them in when it's cold and you start raising the temperature slowly and it gets up to 120 degrees and the frog's like, you know, okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. 130. Okay. 140. He's dead. (laughs) You know, like, and that's what's happened here with the federal law requiring you to be 21 years of age or older to purchase a handgun. It's been like that for a long time. We've gotten to a point where we just accept that's a fact. And now long guns are under attack. And we're like, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. If an 18-year-old can carry one of these AR-style weapons into the battlefield, they should be able to buy them as civilians too. Will 18-year-olds carry M9 Berettas and soon to be, you know, and and now (laughs) P320s, right? So like, what's the difference? We should be up in arms about that as well. Okay, so that's that's my point here is we've already gotten warmed up to that idea, and that is part of that slippery slope argument. We've got we that's why I am morally and principally opposed to this type of law, besides the fact that it's a stupid law because I don't think it'll have any sort of effect like they think or claim that it will have. And all these things have been passed and proposed in direct response to Parkland, and we got to stop that from happening again. And I don't think that's, yeah, okay, so that kid bought him when he was 18 years old, right? But we've seen plenty of other shootings where juveniles get access to weapons, and they shouldn't have, perhaps, right? But 
it doesn't necessarily prevent that from happening. And one other thing I want to, while you had me uh, kind of thinking outside the box here, I want to ask if anybody, uh, any of the listeners, or if you have, I've heard a lot of these proposals about banning 21-year-olds from purchasing guns. But what about the 21-year-olds that already own these guns? Are there, I haven't heard of any plans of what are they going to do with these? Are these people going to become felons? Are they going to have a, a specific time to turn them in before they come up and just round them up and throw them in prison? Um, what, what's the process? You know, um, if, you, if you want the universal background check, you can't even give that to your father, right? You, you'd have to go through a, a, an FFL to transfer. So what, what happens to these otherwise law-abiding citizens that might be 19 or 20 that have a firearm or a few rifles and have never hurt anybody and now, because of this horrible person, they're going to become de facto criminals? Or are you just going to let them slide? Are you just going to grandfather them in and just penalize the next group of 18 to 20? It, it just doesn't yeah. make sense to me. And I haven't heard anybody come up with a logical explanation of what they plan to do. Yep. Those are all also excellent points to make. We need to move along, so let's jump now to, this is just a, a statement from the NRA about long gun purchases by law-abiding adults, okay? I'm just going to read this statement, uh, and then we're going to move on to the next thing here, okay? Federal law prohibits adults under the age of 21 from purchasing a handgun from a licensed firearm dealer. Legislative proposals that prevent law-abiding adults aged 18 to 20 years old from acquiring rifles and shotguns effectively prohibits them from purchasing any firearm, thus depriving them of their constitutional right to self-protection. We need serious proposals to prevent violent criminals and the dangerously mental, mentally ill from acquiring firearms. Passing a law that makes it illegal for a 20-year-old to purchase a shotgun for hunting or an adult single mother from purchasing the most effective self-defense rifle on the market punishes law-abiding citizens for the evil acts of criminals. The NRA supports efforts to prevent those who are a danger to themselves or others from getting access to firearms. At the same time, we will continue to oppose gun control measures that only serve to punish law-abiding citizens. These are not mutually exclusive or unachievable goals. And I agree with that and appreciate uh, the NRA's statement on that matter. Here's a follow-up uh, to the same story. NRA files lawsuit saying... Florida gun bill approved by Governor Scott violates the Second Amendment. Now, Matthew, you've done quite a bit of reading up on this, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand this over to you. Yeah, well, I thought this was interesting, and the reason why I put it in, and I know we talked about it last, I believe it was last week, um, about in, 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 as far as Dick's um, sporting goods not selling to 21-year-olds. And, you know, my, my stance was, you know, in certain states, it's going be, it's, it's to be problematic um, that they're, they're you know, um, doing this on the basis of age or discriminating on, on the basis of age. But the NRA took it at a different stance and said, no, this is, this is universal and you're denying them their Second Amendment right. And because the Supreme Court has ruled that the Second Amendment does apply to firearms, not for hunting specifically, but for self-defense, that I think this this is an interesting argument that's saying, yes, the Supreme Court has said that the Second Amendment applies to self-defense, and now you are eliminating these people's opportunity to defend themselves, which is yeah. a protected constitutional right. So I thought this was very, very uh, wise. I, I'm, I'm, 
let me say I'm, I'm shocked that, that they're going down this road because I didn't think that, you know, frankly, in the political climate, that they would have enough, you know, kind of cojones to, to take this on. But I, I'm, I'm happy that, you know, that they are pushing back on, on these, these types of um, free, you know, un, unintentional or, or policies and laws that are passed under the guise of protection, but strip away freedom. And, yeah. and, and I think it's really important to, to understand it in that context. Absolutely. And we, we kind of talked about the, a lot of the same stuff uh, just a week ago uh, as we covered the story of the, uh, I think he was a 20-year-old in Oregon that was wanting to purchase, Just he, he just wanted to uh, purchase a uh, simple, um, what was it, the Ruger 1022, I think it was, from a Walmart or maybe it was a Dix. I don't remember which because I know we were talking about both things. Now, granted, that was not a law that was passed. That was simply Dix and Walmart deciding that they didn't want to uh, uh, sell to sub, you know, 21 year olds and, and things like that. Right. So it's a totally different issue. Uh, this is actually talking about a lawsuit against a state and a law that is believed to be unconstitutional. Uh, businesses generally have a right to sell or not sell to certain individuals, uh, as they, as they choose to do so. Uh, although there have been some exceptions to that in other cases, which I'm not going to go into the politics of all that. Hey, here's kind of, this is where the title of today's episode comes from. And this is really also important to recognize, I think, that this is the kind of sentiment that is existing in segments of our society right now, okay? And uh, on foxnews.com, it says here, professor calls for anti-gun types to attack the NRA and, quote-unquote, leave no survivors, okay? The professor now claims it was just a joke. Uh, There was a screenshot of, uh, you see here in the article, uh, I'll put this up on the screen, that uh, they had a screenshot of this guy's fo- Facebook post uh, that uh, that this uh, came from, leave no survivors. You know, we need, it's time that we attack the NRA and all these, these uh, pro-gun groups and people, right? He actually said here, an Ohio professor, it says, according to the story, is he's under investigation for making a Facebook post. He called for anti-gun activists to storm the NRA headquarters and make sure there are no survivors. James Pierce, an adjunct professor at Southern State Community College in Hillsborough, wrote the post on June 13th, the day after terrorist mass shooting attack in Orlando. Okay, so this is actually kind of old, but we are seeing the same type of language being used even in the mass media, where I've heard stuff just this week on the news where it's like, it's time to to bring down the NRA. It's time to attack these people. and so this, this post, like I said, is no longer available. It's gone. Uh, but I just wanted to bring attention to this. This is an older story, but it's important to recognize this is the kind of stuff that we are under attack from. All right. Talking now about FBI background checks. We are moving right along because uh, the time is, is drawing near that Matthew will have to take <laughs> off. FBI background checks for gun sales spike after mass shootings. Uh, this is nothing new, Right. Now, there's actually a little graph here shows us, this is according to the sunsentinel.com, sun-sentinel.com, uh, article by John Maines and Yuran Zhu. And uh, it shows this graph back to 1998 uh, of gun sales, okay? And we see a little bit of a spike after Obama was elected. We see a huge spike after the uh, Sandy Hook thing happened. And, and I think part of that too, besides that was a, a, a horrible, horrific thing that, that happened. 
but we saw immediately states like New York and Connecticut uh, pass anti-gun laws, right? They, and so you immediately saw a spike too as people responded to that and, and, and saw the opportunity to buy more guns and ammo. Okay, so then we had San Bernardino in 2015, a huge spike there, the 2016 Pulse nightclub shooting, a little spike there. Uh, but kind of the part, uh, some of the article, and we'll talk about a related article on Vox.com that basically highlights the same thing, talks about the same data, but their article is suggesting that gun sales usually skyrocket after mass shootings, but not this time. I, I don't know if I'm quite convinced of that premise, but uh, what's your take, Matthew? Yeah, and the reason why I thought this was important to add, um, not because it's shocking that Vox.com is anti-gun um, or extremely leftist, uh, but the fact that, and I think this is a, is a cautionary tale of both sides of, of any debate, to make sure when you're, when you're citing statistics or sharing posts on, on Facebook or whatnot, or getting your talking points for what you want to argue for, that you actually do some research into what you're reading. Because um, the FBI or, or the, the article that you just showed uh, shows the correct statistics for these background checks, okay? The Vox, um, the, the Vox story Okay, um, it, it, it substantiates their, their, their uh, premise that gun sales normally skyrocket, but this time they're not because everybody is in agreement that guns are bad, right? So in order to substantiate that, they can't actually get the real statistics because the real statistics show that there were 2,293,373 background checks, but, but Vox gets their statistics from Buzzfeed. Now, I don't know if they just decided not to fact check the st stats that were coming from Buzzfeed, but they put, they post that there were only 122,626 background checks. That's definitely substantiates the fact that Guns, gun sale or gun uh, background checks didn't skyrocket. Unfortunately, it's just not true. It's, it's, it, so, um, and, and now, I've seen now real quick, Matthew, one thing that is interesting is they do have the chart here. That's the mm -hmm. same chart as exactly. what we saw on the uh, Sun Sentinel article. It's pulling data from the FBI data. Right. But, but uh, did they, I mean, could they not interpret and understand what this was saying? I, I, I don't know. That in, in, in it's because most people read the headline of an article or they gloss over the facts and they just, they just see the numbers and that's all. They don't do their research and they, they bank on the fact that most of their readers are just going to regurgitate this, uh, this headline and that's going to be the facts. And so we see it with the 18 school shootings, right? They don't yep. care that it's not accurate. They just put it out there. And then you have, you know, the, the former president saying it. He doesn't do his fact checking. So it, uh, it's a cautionary tale on both sides because I've seen it. You know, I've seen uh, pro-gunners use the same statistic, you know, uh, bogus statistics to argue their points. All I'm saying is make sure that you fact check whatever you're reading. Um, and, and so you can, you can come from a place of knowledge rather than um, get yeah. blown up like this. This is, this is just bogus amateur 
reporting. It's horrible. Yep. So we've included in the show notes of today's episode the uh, a link to FBI's website uh, where you can see you know, they post on a monthly basis what last month's Nick's fire and background checks were. And so as it is March, they just posted the other day, uh, February's background check uh, data. And so we, we do see, as you kind of touched on already, Matthew, 2.3 million background checks through the NICS system for firearm purchases. Now, it should be noted here, by the way, that when we talk about these 2.3 million background checks, it actually translates to more than 2.3 million firearms because is counting background checks, not the firearms. And, and the, the, now Nix does, or the FBI does get a little bit of data on which firearms are involved, okay? Because they, they, they collect, here's basically what they collect. They collect the fact that a background check occurs and they know that it's either for a handgun or a rifle or a shotgun or, you know, it's, it's long guns and it's, and it's handguns or it's a combination of, of, of those, okay? It's multiple of those or whatever, right? But they don't necessarily know that it's for multiple guns. If it's, if it's rifles, if it's a rifle background check, it could be for five rifles, okay? If it is for pistols, it might be for two pistols and they might not necessarily know that. Or it could be a pistol and a rifle, you know, on a single background check and you're buying one pistol, but you're buying five ARs that day and they wouldn't know any different. Okay, so that's why this background check information is pretty interesting. So we actually know that in the month of February, 2.3 million background checks occurred. Some small number of those would have been rejected, but basically probably about 2.3 million occurred and actually means that more than 2.3 million guns were purchased in the month of February, which is more than February of a year ago and is a little bit less than February of 2016. I'm not convinced though that this spike that Vox says hasn't happened has happened yet. I think the spike is coming because with the rhetoric and the things that we're talking about reporting on today, I think now people are going to start being a little more interested in purchasing guns and ammo again, uh, just because that's just the nature of things. And when we see Republican governors like Rick Scott and Republican legislatures in Florida pass anti-gun bills we're going we're going to start to see the effects of this it might be a little slower than some of the past shootings that have occurred uh and the resulting spikes but i do think it's going to come and it, and it is coming all right so um let's now get to this article on washingtontimes.com and all of a sudden the page crashed on me on my computer. Here we go. It's coming back. Uh, the title of this one is Democrat tries to destroy AR-15 in political stunt, instead creates illegal sawed-off rifle. Now, uh, this made the rounds on social media. Chances are many of you saw this. If you follow our Facebook page, which, by the way, is shameless plug, go like our Facebook page, Concealed Carry. You can go to facebook.com forward slash Concealed Carry Inc., and uh, you can follow our Facebook page. And we had a, l- a little video, a little coverage and a meme about this last week, just a couple days ago as well. And basically, Democrat uh, running for Congress in Virginia, her name is Karen Mallard. She, you know, did one of these stunts. We've seen other people do this too. It was like, enough is enough. I've had this AR-15 sitting around in the closet somewhere and it's time to destroy it. <laughs> and so they pull out the grinder or the saw or whatever and they cut the barrel off and instantly become felons. 
Yeah, it's beautiful. It's it's beautiful. And and if that wasn't enough, uh, it's great because they interview her afterwards, right? And they ask her, hey, are are you concerned? Because did you know that, you know, what you're doing is illegal? And she says, oh, in the camera. Oh yeah, I knew what I was doing, but I had I had already rendered the 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 weapon uh, inoperable. Okay, <laughs> as if that matters, right? Like, it, <laughs> it's bizarre, but hey, she's yeah. running for Congress. Good luck. Yep. Oh boy, you know, and so I, that's what that's what you get when you have clueless politicians and clueless people just in general that don't know anything about guns. And a lot of times don't even understand what the actual laws are. We see that so often when people say, we need stricter gun laws. And they propose stuff, (laughs) so they talk about stuff that already exists. Exactly. (laughs) Because they don't know it. You know, they're they're clueless. And so she committed a felony on camera. The proper way to do this, by the way, liberals that are, excuse me, did I say, oh, sorry. uh, Folks that are listening that are slightly less pro-gun than I am that are thinking about cutting your ARs in half, start by cutting the receiver. That's, you know, that's the part where all like the little working parts are located in case you don't know what the receiver is. You know, it's kind of more in the middle of a gun. So cut through the receiver first, then cut the barrel if you'd like. <laughs> just, just, just a little tip. Right. Oh boy. Anyway. <laughs> I'm going to save you on the liberal thing. Okay. I think there's a difference between liberals and leftists. And, and, and uh, if you watch Dennis Prager, check out his, his uh, an article he wrote about the difference between liberals and leftists. Um, I think it, I think it'll be eye opening, but um, I'll save you on that one. I, I know you're not, uh, you're not against all, all left leaners. <laughs> well, you know, we generally take a, uh, we try to take a non-political approach on the podcast as far as not being political to particular parties, because to me, I mean, you probably get a sense for where I am politically, right? If you listen to the podcast for a long time, but I don't care if you're Democrat, independent, Republican, libertarian, uh, green party, whatever. If you are pro gun, you're my friend. Right. And what we talk about on this podcast is guns and concealed carry. And there are people on all sides of the political spectrum that are pro-gun they just tend to not be quite as they're, they're, there's not quite as many of those <laughs> on some of those other uh sides of, of the debate uh and so sometimes it's a little challenging to talk about some of these issues without bringing a little of that into it but anyway um yeah so <laughs> next story <laughs> hey uh before you before you start i gotta i gotta remind you um I have a meeting that I have to take off to, but for the listeners, don't let Riley skimp out on the bonus video that I included in the, in the uh, outline because you're going to like it, but I'm not here to hold his feet to the fire, but make sure he does. If he doesn't send some. (laughs) All right, man. Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, Matthew meaning to take off. So um, I'm actually messaging Jacob to see if he's, if he's able to join in, you know, on, on a, on short notice. So we'll see if Jacob actually pops in and we'll get proof positive that he's not, he's not been kidnapped <laughs> or killed by, by Miss, Mr. Marister there. So make sure he holds up like a, a like a, a newspaper with the date. So, you know, <laughs> so actually I'm bringing him in right now. So say hello to Jacob before you take off. There he is. <laughs> hey. Thanks. So, for- Thanks for helping me out. <laughs> <laughs> no problemo. <laughs> <laughs> All 
So uh, anyway, next story. And this is, it's appropriate that Jacob just popped in for the podcast because this one's near and dear to his heart. Uh-oh. Meaning that it was just announced about an hour or so ago that a new Wyoming law has been signed by Governor Matthew H. Mead. And this Go new Wyoming. law allows concealed carry of guns in churches without having to first obtain written permission from the church leader. Yeah, it's kind of a big deal. So good job, Governor Mead. Um, it's, it's been interesting to watch Wyoming. And I think that a lot of people who are listening to this, it's, it, we kind of have these preconceived notions about uh, what you know, states are so gun friendly. And we assume that states like Wyoming or Texas that have all good, awesome gun laws and nothing, you know, bad gun wise ever happens there. But it's actually not the case. I mean, you look at your most gun friendly places that we think of as being gun friendly, like Texas, Wyoming, and there are things there that aren't so awesome. And this is one of those things that wasn't so awesome that has now been changed. So previous, you know, as of yesterday, if you wanted to carry a gun in a church, in addition to ensuring that church didn't have any active policy against it, like a sign or posting or something. In addition to that, you also just straight up needed to ask permission. You needed a, you know, a church leader or however it was worded in that statute to say, yes, you may, uh, and grant you that permission. But, but as of today, based on this new legislation being signed, that's no longer necessary, which brings Wyoming into the majority, frankly. I mean, there's not right. that many states that, that had that. I mean, you have North Dakota, Nebraska, Missouri, Arkansas, Louisiana, Georgia, South Carolina, Ohio, Michigan, and D.C., uh, and, and previously Wyoming, were states where permission was required to carry a gun into a church. And now Wyoming is, is among the rest of the states which do not you know, expressly require you to obtain permission. Yep. You know, it is one of those things where you find these things out about certain states. And, you know, sometimes there are laws that were passed way back in like the 1800s. And keep in mind, concealed carry was not a very popular idea in the late 1800s. Right. And, and, and so honestly, in the last, you know, it's really been in the last 20, 30, 40 years that you've seen this pretty big movement uh, that has made concealed carry a, a thing. And so sometimes you have these laws on the books that just go way back, even in very awesome states like Wyoming. <laughs> and it's just, it's time that we see this thing turned around. But there's, there's a lot of weird ones like that. I mean, you look at states like uh, Arizona, no campus carry. Look at states like Alaska, you know, and they have some funky stuff that's like, what? What are you talking about? So yeah, it is kind of weird, you know, that we, we sometimes just assume that, and, and this is important for you travelers, you know, you might be traveling to a state like Texas or Wyoming or something and say, oh, these guys love guns. And you go to Texas and you cruise into any establishment that derives more than half their revenue from alcohol and you're breaking the law if you have that gun. Now they're, they're supposed to post it and in theory you would notice and see that sign. But uh, yeah, it, don't just assume that because, you know, everybody there supposedly loves guns that all of the laws support anything you might think to do. Yep. Good stuff. Well, we're happy to see Wyoming uh, pass this law. Governor Meade has been a great friend of the Second Amendment uh, as, a, as a governor. Now, I mean, it kind of makes sense in a state like Wyoming, uh, but he's really kind of taken it to a whole new level with his support of the Second Amendment, with support of the industry, support of competitive shooting in his state. Uh, with the Wyoming governor's match and other things, you know, one thing that we've probably not even really touched on that uh, they, they put in place a few years ago is this, uh, I'm trying to think what they call it. Uh, so we have the Wyoming governor's match, which was just started last year. It was kind of, it's a two gun match. I think this year they're going to also have a three gun format as well, 
but they started a couple years ago this uh, competition of sorts. It's uh, something like the the Wyoming 100 or something like that. And it's uh, actually administered, I think, through their Department of Fish and Game. And it's just a, a simple little competition uh, that they have put out there to encourage more people to get involved with the shooting sports and to enjoy it you know, as, as something that they're proud of as Wyoming, what do you call them, Wyomingites? Wyomingites, correct. <laughs> so I, I just think it's awesome, you know, to, to see, you know, when you have a governor who's the, the CEO and chief of a state, uh, take it to a whole new level as far as his support in, in just really pushing it out there, uh, making it known of his stance on the Second Amendment. Contrast that with Governor Scott of Florida. I don't anticipate uh, Governor Scott will be encouraging a three-gun competition anytime soon. <laughs> anyway. I don't okay. think anyone would show up if he did either. Uh, I'd show up. Are you kidding me? Let's Let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. So uh, now we get to our justified saves segment of the podcast. Uh, we have a couple of great stories here today where uh, people saved their lives potentially because they were able to carry and possess and or use a firearm in their defense. First story, this is, this is what it's all about. When we talk about the need for concealed carry, the need for self-defense, the need to protect this right, you have a 73-year-old man in Fresno, California, he goes for a walk every day down a canal bank behind his home. He takes his dog. He goes for a little walk. He does this every day. Good for him. 73 years old. He's making sure he gets out, gets a little, little physical activity, uh, keeps himself healthy and happy, and his dog healthy and happy as well. On this particular day, a 22-year-old man approached the 73-year-old, and a verbal confrontation began. Dyer, and it's quoting a, a police chief, Jeffrey or Jerry Dyer of uh, Fresno Police, uh, he said that the man, that the, or that these two men have had issues in the past. So they knew each other or they had had some sort of uh, association in the past. Okay, so anyway, the 22-year-old approaches the 73-year-old. And at some point, the 22-year-old picks up a large stick or wooden object and struck the 73-year-old, which may have resulted in his leg or ankle being broken. This is pretty severe. I mean, especially when you're talking about, I mean, we have a huge age disparity here. You have a 73-year-old man and a 22-year-old who's just starting to hit his prime uh, as far as his, his size, his strength, his ability, and so forth. And he's attacking him with a stick or some large wooden uh, object. And it, and it breaks this man's leg in the process. That's when the 73-year-old pulled out a firearm and shot the 22-year-old three times in the hip and wrist. Both men were taken for medical treatment. The 73-year-old does have a permit to carry a concealed weapon. And although the investigation is ongoing, preliminary information points to the shooting being in self-defense. Love it. So this is a great one uh, because it, it talks, it, it gives us some really good things to consider for ourselves, right? For one, we talked about that age disparity and how the gun is the great equalizer and that this is a great reminder of that. But here's another thing I, th I think is really interesting. My experience, and rather you can chime in, but my experience is that a large number of the people listening to this podcast probably have never practiced or trained or been taught how to fall down on the ground and return fire. Have you ever lied down on the ground and practiced drawing your gun out of a holster and, and, and firing? Because if your legs are broken, if your ankle's broken, you're shooting from the ground. You're not going to jump back up into your perfect isosceles stance, three-point it, and you know, put shots on target. You better be able to respond from the ground. So this, this is a really good example of an important skill uh, when it comes to self-defense shooting. 
Yeah. Things change when you get on the ground or when you get in awkward positions. Uh, take, take any sort of, you know, more advanced, I mean, something above and beyond like your basic NRA pistol class, right? Uh, where you're forced to shoot from different positions, from different locations, uh, around objects and barriers, uh, things change. And you'll oftentimes learn things about yourself as far as your abilities. You'll also learn a lot of things about your gear. I'll give you a good example. A few years ago, I was uh, uh, in a training course and I was using a certain holster. And that holster broke, one of the loops or whatever, right? It broke when I started basically rolling around on the ground. I wasn't, you know, doing any James Bond moves. It just simply was, you know, shooting from various positions on the ground, moving, you know, to my side, moving to uh, my, my, my stomach, you know, a prone position, things like that. And it actually uh, cracked a part of the holster. And so you learn things like that and you're like, oh yeah, that's, you know, obviously that's a problem because I can't have my equipment failing on me when I'm in this type of situation. And so by putting yourself in different positions, uh, you know, adverse conditions and things like that, you're going to learn not only about your abilities, but also if your equipment's up to snuff. And that's important to, to learn. I think this, that's a great application you pulled out of this, Jacob. Yeah. Well, uh, there's obviously also a political undertone here because in California, whether or not you can or can't really get a permit is dependent on what county you're in. You know, the state law says you have to show good cause. And some counties, this 72-year-old this man would have walked in and said, well, I go for walks with my dog and I'm worried that I could uh, get attacked. And some counties, obviously the one he lives in, would say, hey, there you go. You're you're, you're good to go. You know, no problem. Here's your permit. Uh, that's, that's a good enough reason. But another county in, Col in California would have said, oh, that's not a good enough reason. Sorry. You know, you, you mean, you, are you carrying around large sums of money when you go on those walks with your dog? Because if you're not, then I'm sorry. You're, you're, that's just not a good enough reason to have a permit. So, you know, if this had been in a different county, this never would have been on, on this podcast because this guy would have just gone down with his broken ankle and leg and who knows what else this 22-year-old guy would have done to him. And that would have been the end of it. Yeah. yeah, it's a, a perfect insight as well. Yeah, we, we just recently talked about the uh, sheriff in San Diego that changed his view on concealed carry permits for his county, which all came about because uh, you've told the story, Jacob, uh, talking with, uh, who was it again? It was, it was a real a, estate agent. That's right. Yeah. And it, it, that, that agent expressed to him, you know, why it was important to him to be able to carry concealed because of the situations that he sometimes finds himself in. Ah, uh, she. Oh, was, that's right. Female. Yeah. Excuse me. Which may or may not be relevant, but the point is that right. the, the San Diego County Sheriff basically did the thing that's almost impossible, especially for politicians. And that is change your opinion on something, right? That, that, that sheriff had to sit there and look yeah. at that woman in the eyes and, and answer the question, why won't you give me a permit? And he had to say, I don't, I, I guess I don't know. Maybe, maybe I should give you permits. Couldn't come up with a good answer, a good response. Yeah. Which is true. Uh, I would feel the same way after reading the story of the 73 year old man to, that may have very well saved his life because, you know, who knows? I mean, was this guy going to continue beating him with this stick? You know? So yeah, there you go. Turning our attention now to Lawrence, Indiana. Man brandishing guns fatally shot at tax business. And please note that did say man brandishing guns. This is kind of interesting because this is a little bit unusual. A man walked into a suburban Indianapolis tax prep preparation shop with a gun in each hand. 
and he was fatally shot by a company employee, police said. Antonio Bertram, 25, of Indianapolis said, what's up, before he was shot midday Tuesday at the Colbert Ball Tax Service Office in Lawrence, Indiana, police said. The Indianapolis Star reported that he fired a shot or two as he staggered into the parking lot and collapsed in his car. He died of a gunshot to the chest, Lawrence Police Deputy Chief Gary Woodruff said. Investigators believe Bertram was unhappy about a tax return he had been that had been prepared for another person, um, although little details still had uh, uh, yet to come out uh, about the uh, the dispute. The person who shot Bertram, who was indeed an employee of the company, uh, is cooperating with the investigation. Uh, it's unclear as to whether that person was licensed to carry the handgun or if they were permitted by the office to carry the gun on the premises, uh, but they had no reason, investigators had no reason to believe it was disallowed. No arrests have been made. It appears this is a self-defense case, which of course is why we include it in our Justified Saves segment of the podcast. I think there's some interesting things from this uh, incident, Jacob. I'm curious about your thoughts first, though. Yeah, so a couple of things stick out to me. Here, here would be one that I find interesting. So the BG walks into this place of business with his guns. He takes a shot to the chest. Uh, so a well-placed shot, I assume. It, I mean, we don't know where in the chest, but in the chest. And then he is able to turn around, walk out of the store, into the parking lot, to his vehicle, fire his own guns, and then collapse. So what is the one, you know, one of the biggest things we can learn from this is that sometimes a well-placed shot doesn't, doesn't stop the threat. (laughs) If he he was able to walk all the way back to his car and and still manage to fire his gun, then that tells me that one shot wouldn't have stopped this threat. Now, in this case, it worked out fine, right? Whoever the good guy is, he fires his shot. He puts it into the chest, the center chest of the bad guy. And the bad guy is not a threat, I guess. I mean, because he turns around and walks out. But he certainly was not physically stopped, right? I mean, he, right. he was still capable of shooting those two guns in his hands back at all of the people inside this business place, this, this workplace. He just chose to turn around and walk away. So, you know, in this case, I'd say that's, that's, a, that's a good thing that we didn't keep putting holes in this person when it was unnecessary. But that's something to consider, right? If, if, you're, if you're the good guy in this workplace and someone walks in dual wielding these handguns like they're in a video game, and you come up on, on target, and you decide if based on whatever circumstances you need to take action, and you fire that shot, you know, you need to be thinking about, you know, did I really stop this threat? And, and, and maybe you'll have the ability, the cognitive ability to put in, you know, to put down one shot and say, well, he's not raising his hands with those guns. He's turning around, he's walking out, you know, in, in which case, great. At that point, he's walking out, maybe I should let him go. But I suspect more likely you probably should put some more shots down on target because, in this case, it worked out well, but the next time it might not. You know, that one shot might hit chest, and then the BG comes up with those, those pistols and starts shooting. And, and now you've lost your opportunity. If you just put down a couple more shots, you know, you would have stopped the threat. Yeah. So that was kind of where my focus was drawn with this story was on that little bit of, you know, that, that tidbit of information where we learned that he was shot once in the chest, and he's able to stumble his way out to his vehicle. And as you said, he's and it actually doesn't say exactly where those shots are fired. I don't know if he was trying to return fire at this uh, concealed carrier inside the store that had just shot him or, or what, uh, but, but that's beside the point. He was shot one time. And yes, it was a lethal wound. Yes, it did ultimately stop him. But how long did it take? Obviously, it took a little bit of time. 
Now, my concern here, the lesson I think this is to be learned is how often do we see justified stories like this, justified saves even, where guys are, you know, bad guys are shot one time. And we do see it a fair number of times. And I sometimes wonder, Jacob, how often is it that gun owners, I mean, generally we're law-abiding, you know, just decent humans, you know, that don't want to hurt other people. And uh, there's actually a story we could have talked about today, but due to time, we, we just couldn't include it in the podcast of a former sheriff's deputy who had an intruder come into his home. And he found, he woke up to the man standing over his bed with a, a steak knife that the, the intruder had grabbed from the man's own kitchen after he'd broken into the home. He's standing over him with a steak knife, muttering a whole bunch of nonsense. And you know, this guy actually, the, the sheriff's deputy or former deputy, chose not to shoot him. He, he grabbed his gun. He ordered the man to, you know, put the knife down and stay put. Don't go, don't do anything. Don't go anywhere or I will shoot you. Uh, you know, he didn't, he, he commented on the fact that he did not want to shoot this man. All right. So that's where, that's the mindset of most people, I, I believe, is we don't want to hurt people. At the same time, does that sometimes get in the way of us doing what needs to be done to stop a threat. And it sounds to me from this story, and granted we have very few facts and information about this story out of Indiana, but it sounds like to me that this person that shot the dual wielding bad guy, maybe not didn't have what, what it took to, to really be focused on stopping the threat. We do see this sometimes where, good folks will pull the trigger and they fire once and they, and they think that's it. They think they're done. Um, whether they're afraid to continue firing, whether they think that's all it will take. I don't know what the mindset is, but we have to be cautious. I'm not encouraging us to go all trigger happy on, on, on bad guys, but the important thing, this is, this is true. I think from a moral perspective, I think it's true from a legal perspective is that the, the, the most important objective in a situation like this is to stop a threat. Not being concerned about someone living or dying, but being focused on stopping a threat. And in this case, I don't feel like the threat was sufficiently stopped as he was capable of still firing his guns and making his way. Now, if he left, I, Hey, you know what? When, when guy, when bad guys leave, the scene when they leave our home, when they exit the home or business or whatever, I would generally say, hey, you know what? The threat's no longer a threat, potentially. But don't forget about the story we had a couple of weeks ago with the two store clerks in Oklahoma, I think it was in Tulsa, where they shot the guy, he went out of the store, then he came back. Right now, I know a common response from some guys would be, shoot them till they're dead, dead, dead. You know, we shoot to kill. <laughs> but we have to be careful uh, with that. that. That's the wrong mindset. The important thing is to shoot to stop a threat. Yeah. And, and, and to your point, we talked about this last time, you know, we, you know, the, that liquor store one you were talking about, but it's, it's, it's absolutely fine to let someone exit and then watch for their return, right? To not, we don't, we don't drop our, our awareness. We don't say, oh, the threat's gone now. Let's all take a nap, right? Just when, when someone goes out that door, we're still vigilant. We're still watching. We're still saying, this is my space. I'm going to defend it. If they come back in, I'm ready. I'm prepared. So that's another good takeaway from this is, you know, 
once once the threat is done, per se, we don't know for sure that it's done. We still need to be on our game. That's right. Final story. Justified save out of – this is WBRZ.com, and uh, this is in uh, East Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Story here says that suspected robber dead, two more arrested after shooting on Monday. Story goes that uh, – and this is quite a story. It's, it's, ra- it's a rather complex scene. As you, Let me outline the details here. This, this, they believe the shooting stemmed from an attempted robbery. Uh, of a home. Okay. Witnesses say that 31 year old Michael Duchamp and two others had planned to rob his neighbor Monday afternoon. When the three confronted the intended victim, Duchamp struck the homeowner. The homeowner then shot Duchamp, prompting the other two to flee. The, the central police chief, this is quite kind of an interesting part of the story. He was in the neighborhood at the time and saw a man wearing a mask armed with a gun run from the residence. As the man fled, he pointed his weapon at the officer. Duchamp died from his injuries in an area hospital Tuesday. The homeowner remains in the hospital and is expected to survive. Now, some other details here. Two other suspects were identified. Uh, they, they've, they've been uh, arrested and charged. And now, if you go down a little further in the story, you'll see that the homeowner was beaten with a pipe. So he obviously sustained some pretty serious injuries. He ended up in the hospital. He was beaten with a pipe, yet he was still somehow able to defend himself with his weapon. That, that's a lot to keep track of, <laughs> frankly. I mean, you, you read through that story and it's like, you know, I don't know. I, if you guys are anything like me, sometimes you hear these stories and you think, man, it's hard to follow exactly what Jacob and, and Riley are even talking about. So I would encourage you to make sure you're always looking for these links in the show notes. Um, for those of you who may subscribe to this podcast via an app where you can't find the, the, the show notes, uh, make sure you, 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 you do. You, know, you can go to our website and find them or whatever it might be. Uh, but let's talk a little bit quickly about uh, this idea of the central police chief was in the neighborhood at the time and saw a man wearing a mask armed with a gun run from the residence. And as the man fled, he pointed his weapon at the officer. So Riley, you know, you, you have a badge, you know, like put yourself in the shoes of this poor police chief. You know, what, what, what does that feel like? You know, this was, I said it was an interesting detail of this story, right? Because this police chief's in the area. He sees a masked man with a gun. And I mean, <laughs> that's immediately suspicious, right? So as a police chief or any sort of law enforcement officer, I'm thinking, well, I'm probably seeking cover and I'm drawing my own weapon. Now, I, sus- I suppose that's probably what this police chief did. Uh, I don't know about all the circumstances. Don't know why maybe he didn't engage these guys. Uh, I mean, we do know that ultimately these guys were arrested. Okay, so I imagine the police chief took some sort of action, but it makes it sound like the bad guy pointed the gun at the chief and the chief's just like, he did nothing. I mean, that, that, of course, this is classic, you know, journalism. We see this so often in a lot of these stories. Uh, it's not the journalist's job necessarily to get us all these facts. They also don't know, perhaps sometimes, what facts might be relevant to certain cases. Um, and I'm not sure if knowing whether the police chief took action in this situation was relevant or not. Uh, ultimately, what we're focused on is the homeowner who was able to defend themselves inside their own home. Um, 
but that's kind of what's going through my mind is masked man, gun in hand, immediately, I mean, you're going to perceive that as a threat and take appropriate action. Um, the other thing I was thinking about is how we often talk about uh, one of the important premises of being supportive of the Second Amendment and the right of self-defense is that I'm, a, I'm, I'm able to defend myself and my household much better and quicker than a call to 911 will, where it may be minutes before some sort of response arrives. It's rare that somebody is right in the area. Now, in this case, we have a police chief that is close enough to the scene of the crime to see the bad guys as they leave the house. He is still too late to save the life of that homeowner. Absolutely. I mean, that, that puts it in perspective. Yeah, yeah, as far as response time. I mean, despite being on the street and basically in front of the house, he's, he's still too late, right? Yep. Uh, a couple other things here. These were neighbors. So this is not some criminals who drove across town to the nice neighborhood and decided, you know, no, they, they were robbing their neighbor, it said. So bad idea. Yeah, super bad idea. Not, not super intelligent criminals. But, you know, it does make you think a little bit about who am I going to open my door for? Who am I going to let into the house? You know, how, how am I going to be a little bit discerning, you know, thinking through some of those things? Another interesting fact here is that we know that the, the one BG who was shot by the homeowner, you know, he, he went down. But the other two who ran off, at least one of them had a gun. Yep. And so the other thing that, you know, I, I'm, I'm pondering on is luckily, you know, a large number of criminals, they get scared easily and they run. But what if the homeowner had to, had to deal with three gunmen? You know, he shoots one, but now the other two are back. They're shooting back, right? Like that's a very significant different situation when you have to take down or you have to fight back against three shooters versus one. So thinking a little bit about, you know, the environment and what it might be like, you know, what kind of ammunition you have on you and how prepared are you when you go to the door, just answer the door. Do you have your gun on you? Is it back in the safe somewhere? Uh, all those kinds of things, which we've discussed many times, you know, become relevant in this conversation. Yeah. Keep, keep your gun on your person. Yes, that is a theme that has emerged many times on this podcast because most of these stories that we share of home invasions are solved uh, much easier when that gun is on your person. So anyway, this is a crazy story. And, uh, but, but so many of these stories like this are crazy. You know, so many of these things you, you could never imagine this sort of thing happening to you, to yourself. Right. And uh, that's one of the challenges with, self-defense, you know, with being adequately and properly prepared and trained is that you can't possibly think of all the potential scenarios and things that might or might not occur, but we have to do the best that we can. And one thing I think is, is a good exercise to do is, is mental preparation, mentally rehearsing and mapping out in your mind potential scenarios and, and try to come up with as many different ones as possible. You know, in my, in, as it relates to my own personal home, I've, I've not run out of ideas as far as different possibilities of what could or might happen with some sort of home invasion or break-in in my home. You know, one that's scary to me is doing what I'm doing right now. I'm on the podcast. I'm on, um, you know, I'm on the mic and I've got myself secluded in my office. So I have a quiet environment to record from, which actually just momentarily ago was interrupted by, by a three-year-old pounding on the door. 
but <laughs> but I, I'm here secluded, and this this is a, a little bit of a scary scenario that has played out in my mind a number of times. That I'm down, you know, I'm here in the office in the, in the basement. Uh, it's the hideaway, you know, bunker uh, of of my home where I do a lot of my work from. But my wife or kid may be in a completely different area of the house that I can't readily access, and I might not even necessarily be aware that something's going on. And so. You know, things like that, you got to be even thinking about preparing. Um, the, the more scenarios that you map out in your mind, the more likely that when faced with something that you are not necessarily expecting or ready for, the less likely you are to freeze or, or panic or freak out or not know how to respond. Because what happens in stressful situations is as, you are, as your brain is evaluating fight or flight, or whatever, you're, you're looking for connections. The brain is, is evaluating the situation and trying to determine, have I seen this before? Have I handled a situation like this before? Am I capable? Uh, you know, your, your decision on whether to fight, flight, or freeze is all centered around the brain's uh, perception of the situation and whether you have some sort of background or connection that you can make that tells you, yes, I can handle the situation. One just one tool or one avenue of preparing yourself mentally is to just run through those different scenarios. And you might even run through those then physically as far as doing drive, you know, drive presentations or run throughs of potential scenarios, use a, a, an appropriate cert pistol or whatever, run through those scenarios. I know I'm running on here, but, but just making the connection of how important it is to be prepared, not only with that gear on your person, but having those mental uh, preps, mental reps, be a part of your daily training as well. So hopefully uh, you are just a little bit more on edge as far as how to handle those types of situations. So anything else you want to add, Jacob? No, I think I'm good, Riley. Cool, man. Hey, appreciate you jumping in on short notice today. It's, it's, this is a unique episode. We had we started it with Matthew Marister, and we're ending it together with uh, Jacob Paulson. It's been a while, and I think, if anything, there's generally a reputation of be, me being the one that bails out. <laughs> True that. Uh, it's, it's fun. You know, you're able to come in and uh, finish up the episode, and so I'm not talking about it by myself and boring everybody to death. Indeedy. <laughs> you can be pretty boring. Totally. Absolutely. So, <laughs> hey, guys, just to wrap it up, uh, one final call out to our uh, sponsors of the episode today. Uh, we mentioned uh, Guardian Nation, guardiannation.com for uh, one of the best memberships available for gun owners out there. And also Glock E-Trainer. And now we've got the Type 1s, the Type 2s, and the Type 3s all available. And they are fantastic. That, that, that's a, a, another tool, like I said earlier at the beginning of the episode, to use for dry practice, uh, to maybe even use in some of this training as you're you know, doing these, these mental rehearsals as we just talked about. So show a little love to, uh, to these products and appreciate your support of them and making everything we do here possible. We appreciate those that have participated on Facebook and elsewhere with the podcast today, the comments that have been shared, questions that have been asked uh, it's, it's, it's great to, to be part of this community and, and have you guys come along with the, on the ride, uh, you know, along with us. So with that, Jacob, I think it's time to bid you farewell until next time. 
So hasta la vista, Riley. Until next time. Take care, buddy. A reminder to everyone to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. reminder that laws vary from place to place and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws the concealed carry podcast concealed carry inc and carry.com and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm related incidents and laws but things can be different where you live or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this we cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast